0: Good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 118 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint.
1: I'm a mom, Woman.
0: And I'm Clarice gray This week, Clarice sits down with elemental director Peter Son to talk about that personal Pixar Touch and the joys of crying while we review the film. We also chat about new documentary Shabu, while I speak to Hayley Atwell about if she chooses to accept. Kicking ass alongside Tom Cruise in Mission, colon, Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one. Plus, in our hot take, we ride a motorcycle off a cliff and into some major Mission Impossible spoilers. Uh, first, let's have a catch up. What's going on, Team Handsome?
1: <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, now, I i am doing good. It's been a very chilled week. The most exciting thing that I went to you this week and it was very exciting was this event um called first film club heard it. but yeah and then all of a sudden Hannah walked up on stage and I found that to be weird and then she started talking it's wild but it went well it was, it was really fun <laughs> thank
0: you to everyone who turned up thank you um Ben Wheatley it was great yeah, it was really yeah. good. Michael Smiley came as well. He was one of the actors and he's like I- iconic. Uh, it was really good. Julie Jackman, director. Yeah, it was really, really, really fun. Uh, so um, make sure, hopefully we're going to do a next one, maybe like October time. Give us a little breather. Um, so yeah. yeah. Uh, you've also got something to announce, haven't you? I'm on.
1: I do. We are doing a competition. Uh, for Fade to Black, uh, there was a film that we discussed a few weeks ago called Evil Dead Rise. Or when I say we discussed, it was more like you and uh, Clarice Hannah because I had not watched the film. Um, not because I wasn't... you know, I, I was up for it. No, I just you know, couldn't make the screening uh, that particular week. You could be in with a chance to win the Blu-ray of the film, a T-shirt from the film, a signed poster and a tattoo. So very, very... Very permanent
0: cool. one wow <laughs> uh, just, so, do, you get, do you get rise tattooed on your forehead
1: <laughs> I need to get more details on exactly what that tattoo pertains to uh, but that is what is on offer. 40s black
0: you... is not responsible for any permanent <laughs> scarring that occurs with this competition
1: prize <laughs> thank you for that disclaimer very important um, but yes all you need do is follow us on twitter uh, which still exists for the time being Uh, No thanks to Elon. Um, And retweet the tweet that is promoting this competition. That is all you need to be doing to be in with a chance to enter. And we will announce the winner next week, after which the prize will be sent to the winner's address. Mm. So there you have it.
0: There you go. Well, um, uh, Clarice has been uh, doing some winning painting and decorating this
2: week,
0: because she's, <laughs> because she's going to um, a really cool thing. And Amon, if you just want to, like, mute... And me.
1: Mute, <laughs> and, and while me we, oh, and Grie really cool about, about
2: this, <laughs> please. Uh, <laughs> yes,
1: Sorry, just going on mute now. please <laughs> take
2: Oh, I've just... I really... I mean, I'm, I'm very bad at cosplay, but I really enjoy painting things. So I bought... Those Disney Store Star-Lord blasters that are, like, for little kids because they're bright blue. And I painted them to look like the, what they look like in the movie, sort of. They're really good. Um, it's very soothing. They're, they're like Etsy I could recommend them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, look, if anyone wants to buy them afterwards, I'll open yeah, yeah. the Etsy account you can... <laughs> Purchase them off me. Send me your
0: send me though. your kids' toys and I'll paint them properly.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sticking with the kids' themes, it's time for our reviews and interviews section of the pod. So let's kick it off with a trailer for Elemental. Meet the residents of Element City. Air usually has their head in
2: the clouds.
3: Oh, my new jacket! Earth can be a little
0: seedy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Nothing weird going on here. Uh, just a little pruning.
0: Water is always getting into something. Oh. Oh. Help. Help! And fire? As ordered, we run a little hot.
2: This shop is dream of our family.
0: Someday it'll all be yours. But we all live by one
2: simple rule.
0: Elements
2: cannot mix. A pipe squished me all out of shape.
4: Dang. That's better.
2: Oh. This girl is on fire. Cause she's made of fire. <laughs> <laughs> she's literally fire. <laughs> this is Elemental in a city where fire water land and air residents live together a fiery young woman and a go with the flow guy he's made of water that's a it's a pun discover something (laughs) elemental how much they actually have in common that reminds me of that jake dylan hall junket where he's like you could say we all live in a strange world (laughs) 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 silence (laughs) Jake <laughs> Gyllenhaal, I
0: mean, he always gives like good junkets, depending what the movie he's doing. <laughs> if it's when he's like done it for the money, it's like okay, let's just take the piss out of it. Like his Spider-Man, Let me no just way, say far something from insane. Home? <laughs> yeah, let's make my, it memorable.
1: <laughs> my favorite Jake Gyllenhaal junket interview is still, I think he was doing. It's like melancholy,
0: damn. That's my favorite. That's my favorite ever. <laughs> he says this every time. <laughs> this is the first time. Sorry. <laughs> I'm in my own little world now. I'm in my velvet buzzsaw junket brain.
1: I think for me, it's when he was doing like a BBC thing and he was defending Sean Paul. Um, that was brilliant. <laughs> I'm still get, like, kind of watching that. And brilliant. this
0: is why I sometimes feel like we are made for each other. Because like, Sean Paul was like, there was that, I used to, when I was at uni, I was in a, a hall called St. Peter's Court. And you know, right. you know that song, Sean O'Fall and Rihanna, I break it off. And it's like, it's yeah. like, it's And I was like, literally, <laughs> that was like our soundtrack for the entire hall. Every time I was like, it's I'm it.
1: <laughs> uh, liking this glimpse into Hannah Flint at uni, what that must have been like. Ha, no. <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: Don't know her. Don't wanna... <laughs> you don't want to meet her. Really? That was a life.
1: <laughs> I imagine. Sorry, we've gone uh, off on a tangent. Would you I'm believe? I'm
2: sure she was fiery or maybe <laughs> watery or landy or airy. <laughs> this is Elemental, directed by Peterson, featuring the voices of Leah Lewis, Mamadou Achi, Ronnie Del Carmen, Sheila Omi, Wendy McLendon Covey, and Catherine O'Hara. And I spoke to Peterson about um, lot. I mean, about like what I love about the Pixar movies is that every single one comes from a personal story. So it's always mm. like a really great place to start every single interview to be like, "What does this mean to you?" And it always means something really. Um, Sweet Tell personal. me about it's your childhood very... trauma. <laughs> yeah. So, it started there and ended with um a tribute to crying. So, please enjoy. But so welcome to the Fate of Black podcast Thank and you. congratulations on what was just such a beautiful film. Thank you. And I think for me, like what really sums up the magic of Pixar is that like because I've, I've done quite a few of these junkets. Yes. And everyone always talks about this memory that is like the starting point of the movie and for Elemental, what was the memory for you?
4: It was um, being in this ceremony where I got to thank my parents. Um, uh, When I was a kid, I sort of was embarrassed for being Korean in America. You know, you got made fun of it and uh, so I pushed it away. And so I didn't really understand my parents and their culture. I mean, I, I did, but I didn't really. And then as an adult, maybe seven years ago, I went to this event where I um, got to thank them. I I got up on stage, I had the speech, but I was shocked to see my parents and how old they had gotten and how much work they had spent their lives doing. And uh, um, I remember seeing them all proud and like my mom's mascara was everywhere on her face from crying and uh, it, it overwhelmed me. And I started crying and I thanked them. And I just said, you know, thank you mom and dad for, you know, just sacrificing so much to give my brother and I a life and my brother was right there too and uh, I was weeping I don't remember everything I said but that was this trigger and I came back to Pixar and I told everyone the story and they're like Peter that's the movie you have to make and so it started with that memory
2: and I imagine like now this coming out and having been able to talk to audience members yeah. you must be hearing so many more stories yes like that yes and I wondered like cuz i always think of art as therapy and so i, I wanted if making this movie like did did it help you realize anything or or feel at peace with any emotions
4: yeah there was i mean it all started off with wanting to connect and then and then having empathy enough to understand your parents as people but then my parents died during the making of this thing and so there's a lot of emotions in, in, in trying to make this thing. And uh, it never started out as this personal thing. I mean, it started from a memory, but it was just going to be this romp through Element City. But then all of a sudden this thing happened and uh, I really started to miss them. And there was some link that I was trying to do to honor them. And uh, so this 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 film, like you're saying, became a little bit of a therapy where the film took dark turns because I was trying to, I was grieving and I didn't know it. But then all of a sudden, you know, um, friends supported you and you're like, you know, and the, the hope came back and, and and hopefully got injected into the film.
2: But I think that's the beauty of this movie and what I find so often with Pixar, because of, I think, the way that you guys work, um, is that it is always such such a human story. But for you, I mean, you talked about that process of Element City and yeah. this kind of fun and, and really imaginative world. But how did you work through that process of going okay, we want to make, like, the human actually map over the fantastical and for it to make sense, like, with the fire element. And I loved that there were so many parts of that culture that I'm sure people would be familiar with and go, oh, yeah, that's like me. But it's never any specific. Right. It's it's no one specific.
4: Right, right. That was a, a challenge. But so much of the game is trying to find sort of, like, resonance with, like, the, the 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 people that are around you and then and, and the audience and uh, um when we first started these fire and water characters there was like superheroes they were throwing their fire around wade was like shooting water out of his hands and quickly it all felt cold cuz cold cuz it felt like are they superheroes i guess they could, these could just be humans doing this and uh but then um um a, a friend artist drew a hand a water hand and a fire hand coming close together and boiling started to happen and immediately like oh that feels I know it's boiling, but it also could feel like goosebumps of when you meet or touch someone for the first time, and uh, when her hair—I mean, her fire—started to shrink. It started to connect us. We started feeling things from affecting the uh, effect, and uh, uh, she, like, when her fire shrank, she became like a candle. And uh, those moments when you're emotionally sort of raw or naked with someone, and uh, they could just say one word, and you could be destroyed. It started connecting to a candle that, like, a wind could just blow it out and so we were starting to make those links to try to connect audiences and all of us to these characters that are fantasy you know effects
2: yeah because i the when wade's just like a puddle that was the part yeah, i yeah. really, really related to yeah, so it was yeah. like i know i never literally become a puddle but <laughs> yeah. sometimes emotionally you just feel like a gloop like a gloop yeah, on the floor yeah yeah
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah i was really trying to find those things that we could all feel and connect to yeah
2: yeah. And I, I wanted to ask specifically about the fire language, because I'm always so interested in when, because you know, that's just a totally fictional language. Right? Yes,
4: that's right. And uh, um, the, the, it started from a fun place of, you know, if, if mom and dad are arguing, the, the, the fire parents were arguing next door, what would it sound like? And we were like, oh, what if it sounded like a fireplace and the pops and crackles of a fireplace? And then uh, we started with literally using sound effects of it, but didn't work. And so we found this language expert, David Peterson, and his team, and they just took the human voice and the pop, anything that we could do to make something sound like fire, you know, and uh, then he used that to make a language.
2: That makes so much sense, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Way you say it, I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh, I love that. Uh, and I kind of want to move on to the city now, because the city design was incredible. And there's a line that really stuck out to me about how... Um, they say that the the city literally wasn't built for for fire people yes. for fire elements. Yes. And immediately I was like, oh my gosh, that's so striking because you know racism and anti immigration rhetoric like that extends to the way mm-hmm. that cities are, are built. And so yes. I, I wondered when you were creating Element yeah. City, like how much of that again that very human storyline was yes. carried into the architecture.
4: Yes. Yeah. I mean we we talked about experiences in new york like i grew up in new york where um um, there were bridges that were so low that buses couldn't go in through them and so that would keep certain you know um, a class out of something and that was always like a a a really fascinating sort of terrible um, way to build a city um and so that of bringing up those ideas but then you know um, um the city was also like in the beginning this parents come to element city we but we also wanted to feel hopeful and so It was this balance so that like, oh, could the city be a place for dreams and and hope to start new lives, but at the same time have pieces of it that showcase that you can also feel outside of it? And uh, that started forming sort of the balance of what the city would be. Because it's not all segregated. It's just, you know, certain aspects can make you feel like that, you know?
2: Yeah. And I have to ask about the design because I always... um feel like with a lot of the the pics our ideas of the future always makes me think of like the world's fair design and like sure, early yeah. Disneyland era. Sure, I mean sure. were there any specific like real world architecture that you were drawing from for those buildings?
4: Yeah, there I mean our production designer Don Schenk loves the 60 era sort of modern look. Um but we were trying to capture iconic places that could support Ember in her journey. So there was two sides. There was like, you know, uh, the identity line, oh, how do we make Ember's home feel like a fire hearth where she feels safe? How do we make the city in the beginning of the story feel dangerous to her? But then as she gets closer to Wade, can the city feel more accepting of her toward, you know, the later in the film goes? So we were designing things like that to sort of support. And then there was the other side of of um, um, the romance of this and like what makes a city a character in a film that helps support growing love. And, uh, you know, uh, we've started to look at all these movies, you know, um, between, you know, Manhattan, Amelie, and Love Actually, like how they, you know, shoot England or London, or how they shoot Manhattan or Paris. There are always these iconic places that set you into a scene so that you can make the the moment more memorable. And uh, so you started looking in that way as well.
2: Yeah, and that must have a lot to do with, color palette because i'm always interested like i was yes. noticing what scenes were set at night time and how beautiful yes. the nighttime scenes looked yeah do you have sort of an like an emotional timeline and you go okay we need this color here we need this color here
4: yes yeah we, we definitely do color scripts like that uh in the beginning you know ember fits into firetown because her orange and um sort of yellow hues match with those warm colors of firetown but then once she enters element city she's just this really bright orange thing in the middle of these blue cool colors. And so all of a sudden she's popped. But as we get closer and and she gets more sort of, you know, she she has these new feelings of the city. It goes more purple. And so that red and the blue start to merge together.
2: And I'm so, I was watching the movie going, how did they do the fire effect because it yeah. looks, I'm just looking at the poster now and it yeah. he looked almost partially like hand animated yes. at some points. And I read that there was an AI element involved in yeah. creating the flames. Could you yeah. talk about that?
4: Yeah. Uh, you know, when we first, you know, designing her was really difficult because when we first turned on the fire, it was very busy. It was really scary looking because then all of a sudden this busy fire, o- like these eyes opened and she looked like a demon, you know, and, uh, <laughs> And then so very quick, quickly, we were like, oh, this is going to be about controlling the actual flames, which is very hard to do. And uh, um, uh, suffice it to say, there were a lot of experiments that happened until we found this technology called NST, which was sort of AI, but it was sort of like early machine learning where it you you fed this this machine or this program uh, a flat design. And let's say it was like a, a leaf shape, you know, and then it would take that shape and then carve into the 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 three-dimensional simulation of real fire making it feel more graphic and then there were other tools that we started using to create a sort of like line work around the face so that we can start where do those lips come from you know and where the where the eye line come from and uh, but it was all about controlling and caricaturing the fire
2: it's it's interesting because i I guess for me from kind of a non-technological standpoint you know i've been reading so much about ai yes in the the framing of you know it's it's going to replace the artist it's scary because it's going to replace the artist it's anti-creativity so it's interesting to see how pixar and animators like are offering kind of a different viewpoint on it that you here you are using ai to actually further creativity i mean what was what's your perspective on, on that side of it
4: yeah i mean like i was afraid of it at first in terms of the power of it but more than anything um, using it as a tool could be very useful, meaning some of these processes that we have to generate the fire took forever. Some of the rendering took about a thousand hours, a frame on some of these shots. And if AI could help optimize that so that the artist can have a a tighter, more direct approach to the creative part of it, that would be amazing, you know, versus having to like get creative and then wait for the render to see like what is our fire gonna look like. If we could get through that faster with AI, that would be amazing.
2: Yeah, and I, I mentioned that I I really related to Wade earlier. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I wanted to talk about um his character and also um uh, Mamadou's performance because there is something so wonderful about I don't know, finding that place for that character where he's able to cry and be so openly emotional, and I think being a, a male character as well, doing that, and the movie at no point ever makes fun of him for it yes. or, or says that it's like a negative, or that he's weak for it. Yes. Um, I wonder if you could talk about, I guess specifically, I guess, working with him, with Mamadou, to yeah. find that kind of right, just yeah. that right tone for him. Yes.
4: Um. It's funny, crying, Uh. when you record it, you know, it's an interesting thing because a lot of people, when they cry, it's a very similar sound and uh, it can get very monotonous uh, or high pitch and there, it can be painful because it's it is pain uh, to a certain degree. Uh, Mamadou had this ability to fluctuate within the crying to make it more appealing or funny or really sensitive or really dramatic. There, it, she, He had this range with the crying that was pretty incredible. And uh, from there... Uh, It really helped us open up of how do we talk about this, this EQ, this high sort of emotional quotient that he had where, you know, we always thought it was funny that he's water and that he's transparent and that he couldn't hide his emotions anywhere. And that started building up these different layers of what does it mean to be a character that would be so emotional, you know, and uh, uh, um, um, but there were a lot of discussions about like some people at Pixar was like, oh, He's too emotional. I don't care for him. You know, like he should be, you know, stronger and more forceful. And uh, uh, I am not that way. I have really related to Wade as well. And so I was trying to find that aspect of him. Oh, I'm glad that you fought for him being so much. Oh, yeah, right on. I think
2: it was my favorite part of the movie. Oh, right on. I loved how much he cried. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I cry a lot, I was like... Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) totally, totally. Yeah. Thank you so much, and congratulations again, and thank you for making this very lovely, wonderful movie. Thank you very much. I really
4: appreciate it. Yeah, (laughs) to the the crying club. (laughs) To the crying
2: club. Going off the back of that interview, A Good Place to Start is, you know... This idea that the the strength and the magic of Pixar is that they do tell these stories from extremely personal places um, and they touch on a lot of stuff that if not if it's not universal, it's like an experience shared by a huge amount of people who can really connect to it is. But maybe it's not always true, because Lightyear, you know. So, <laughs> where where does Elemental does Elemental have that like magic little Pixar touch to
1: it? I think it does. I think it does. There was a lot that I found very relatable uh, in this film, and as you say, Pixar are very good at marrying very high concept high concept ideas with relatable stuff. And I think with me in this film, there was two things. I think the love story, I found that to be really relatable, especially when it got into sort of discussing taking risks in order to get to the next stage of relationships. I thought that was really well done and that felt very relatable. And also the immigrant story that it's telling, that also felt relatable and very specific. Um, not to me per se, but I've seen some sort of the stories of the work, and I know of certain cultures where the sort of tug and pull between what the child wants to do with their lives and what the child feels a certain responsibility to do because of what their parents have sacrificed. There's a tug and pull there. And I've seen that in other stories in live action before. I haven't really seen it in animation this way before. And I think they push those messages through in a really satisfying way while still being an entertaining animated film. So for me it did have that Pixar magic.
2: I I would say it it was like halfway there for me. I think like I definitely could feel like the true story behind it and the feeling and the humanity. But and this is the thing again with the other Pixar thing is let's take an insanely high concept and try to make it relatable so it's like what if toys had feelings what if feelings mm. had feelings and this is what if elements had feelings and i think the idea practically doesn't quite work i mean hannah yeah. like for example with the how the five people are depicted as being like every single <laughs> Or well, like five different possible groups of representation. Like it's sort of, it's sort of Eastern European and also South Asian and East Asian and sort of. Middle it's basically like these, right? Well.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you Did could you think
2: like that, that worked.
0: This is the thing. I I think you're so right. It kind of got halfway there. I think it was trying to ground these fantastical concepts in reality too specifically and I think in a way that created a bit of problems like yeah I mean you know there's a whole thing where it's like the whole joke about they do hot food Mm. (laughs) and these people you know they can't handle it like Wade who is water they can't really handle it I think it own you know what it is I think it past Pixar films I really like like Inside Out is Soul included in this as well
1: yeah, Soul's Pixar. Yeah, yeah I really like, like
0: I really like So I think there's a kind of like getting into psychological level of things, really getting into the introspective nature of like, you know, cause it felt quite philosophical as well. It kind of really gra- grappled with these really deep feelings and I just didn't feel like I got quite inside the heads of the characters beyond this kind of very obvious tale of you know, the kind of first generation, second generation, gentrification, like, you know, come into into America sort of like Mm. story, which felt for me, it's like, okay, this is quite obvious. Like it felt, you know, you said you haven't seen it before in a Pixar movie, but we've seen it before in so many different ways. So for me, it didn't really invite in much of a conversation. I think certainly the idea of like, inter-species mixing was a kind of interesting thing, but it never pushed it far enough. I also found it, I love Mamadou Achi. He is Mauritanian-American, so he's like like Northwest African coming over. But the, the 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 water people are coded white. All the rest of the people in his family are voiced by white actors. So it's kind of like, and then obviously all the fire people are like, like have, like, East Asian people voicing them, so again it was that I think it was trying to be too literal sometimes, and it kind of didn't work for me that Mamadou actually is playing a white white guy, I don't know that was kind of, I I couldn't because I know it's him, I couldn't I don't know, separate, and I kind of, like, I wish they kind of, rather than doing the typical white versus other (laughs) conversation, I wish they kind of grappled with it in a less you know, by the book formulaic way.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think if you you think of, you know, turning red, which I think touches on some of the same themes yeah um about like parental pressure and expectations and like but i really but felt so that culturally specific because <laughs> it's about yeah because it's yeah. not it's like about a chinese canadian girl in the 90s like it's so hyper specific that i think but also universal for every single girl who's ever
0: gone through that experience <laughs> yeah in a yeah, way yeah
2: but that's sort of how it works is that i actually think the more specific you go the more universal it becomes because like we yes. all possess empathy so yeah (laughs) we can understand what it's like
0: (laughs) so doing this coded thing it was like trying to talk about things it's like it it kind of got a little bit messy for me because also it's like okay so how do these elements interact how do they mix you know you're saying that they should stay like is this segregation do you what I mean like like so you can't intermix between people that's what it was kind of posing these very specific racially divided questions, but I don't know, the kind of weird payoff, like, I don't know, I I don't think it, I don't think it did the job um, of, and I spent, because obviously it's a kid's thing, and it's trying to like, do teach people that differences are good, but I don't know if it kind of did a, it could have done this without having it a romantic thing as well. It's like, you know, people can get along and and interact without it being a romantic, Absolutely fine with the romantic thing, but what about getting like getting together and working together in other ways? I don't know. It just it didn't quite land it for me. The bigger themes that these 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 films are meant to do, um, and I think that's because it was trying because uh, it didn't do it because it was using the fantastical construct rather than get being more explicit, I suppose.
2: I will say I thought it worked better than Zootopia because there was no weird like cop shit (laughs) within that (laughs) so I'll give it that I like preferred the concept to how they tried to do it in Zootopia but Amon I mean I seeming like it seems like you liked this more so I I wondered if you Mm. could talk about everything that we said but linked maybe more to the design of the city and the characters and the look of the animation which I thought was really cool. Mm.
1: I do think the look of the animation was very cool. I do have to agree though in that it wasn't as well thought out as it could be and even though to so the main focus of this film is the fire element and the water element, the earth and the air elements, I wanted to know more about how they worked within Element City and what function they performed to help everything else work. Um and there's many questions as amazing as it looks, there's many questions I have about how all this works and how all this is put together that the film never really addresses, But the animation itself, I think, is beautiful, very, very textured, very, very detailed, as you would expect from a Pixar animation. The expressiveness on the faces of both fire and water and how they use their elements to heighten emotions based on what the scene needs I think it's really funny. They have that thing in the trailer where uh, water tries to eat uh, some hot food and the way in which they visualize that is, both, is, is really, really funny and entertaining. So BFX artists have done a really fantastic job. I also love what they do with Ember in that she's almost <laughs> a superhero in ways, in, in the way that she uses her firepower to think up quick solutions on the fly depending on what the situation needs. I think they did a really, really good job with that. And that also then dovetails in very nicely to Ember's own individual plot of um, how can I use my gifts the way I want to rather than sort of be indebted to I want to take over my father's business. That, I think, was done really, really well. I like that storyline. And again, that felt very relatable and specific to the whole you know, yes, I want to honor my parents. Yes, I want to be a good daughter. Like, th- th- there's a really sort of struggle within Ember. Like, I'm, I'm, am, I, am I a bad daughter? Am I a good daughter? I thought all of that was done really well. Um, and then the other thing, which is like, you know, I I have all these gifts. Maybe I want to pursue other stuff. I thought that that felt very relatable to me. I really like that storyline.
0: I did like the fact that the villain in this was civic bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um. But again, it it made me realise like, just racism is accepted in this elemental society and it hasn't mm-hmm. moved on. Right? Because that's what it's kind of suggesting that, because there's a whole sequence of a museum and they want to go to it and they're not allowed in certain places. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like, okay, but why is everyone just accepting discrimination? <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, do you, that sort of thing. It's like, how are these structures in place and you, that's what I mean. It's like you're getting to really deep. Wow, really you could ask things. that
2: of this world as well. Yeah, <laughs> I know, true. I know. Same as,
4: mm.
0: yeah. But I suppose it's kind of, uh, yeah. I I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of heavy heavy duty stuff. And I um, um, you know, we're supposed to be this is the next generation cam to come through, and it's just I I suppose I kind of wish there was a little bit more um pushback in a way, like between like if there was another thing of like. Not, I don't, you don't need you know, like a water savior. Like, we don't need Wade to be the like, you know, water savior here or coded white savior. But like, yeah, I will say I really, um, I did really enjoy the, the crying thing though. Um, as someone who loves to cry <laughs> a lot and also having it from like a male character showing emotions, I think it's really good that um, that's like kind of like a normalized way of expressing emotions. So that was fun. And all the, you know, I will not fault any of the voice performances, they were all great.
1: Yeah, uh definitely agree on the voice performances. I, I heard that um, uh, Leah Lewis and Mamadou actually recorded their voice sessions together, and you can absolutely tell. And I don't understand why more animated films don't do that these days. A lot of the recording is very solitary. Um, and there's Schedules!
0: <laughs>
1: a, I know, but you get so much when they record it together. Um, you know, because I may have to bring this up, but uh, Kevin Convoy and Mark Hamill. Um, Never they, Who are they? <laughs> Well, if you've got 20 minutes now, I'm joking. Um,
0: if you've got a train <laughs> to Brighton. <laughs>
1: uh, they have spoken numerous times about how much they enjoyed filming together and how much that added to their performances. Um, and I wish that more animators would take that cue and do what they did here. Uh, because there's a secret source, especially when the two characters have so many scenes together that it's hard to quantify exactly what it is, but it it does make a difference. Um, So yeah, I like it.
2: Okay, well, Amon, unless you want to say something about the score, because I did think it was good.
1: (laughs) Thomas Newman did the score. uh, Very gentle for the most part, which I liked, uh, but also taps into the different cultures at play here. And I think very subtle ways that also... which
0: cultures!
1: (laughs) (laughs) You are quite right. But yes, um, I think you did a good job. I do want to talk very briefly and maybe ask you guys the question. This is a Pixar film that is open, I think, to like one of the lowest box offices ever for any Pixar film. What are you putting that down to? Because I think we all like this to varying degrees. But, I mean, for me... I feel like part of the issue at play here is that so many of the recent Pixar films have gone straight to Disney Plus or are on the verge of going to Disney Plus very soon after the theatrical release, which is maybe why parents and families aren't coming out in their droves to go and see this in cinemas. Could that be a reason why this film's performed so poorly, you think?
0: I mean, uh, I didn't know it has... I suppose, I don't think you can put it down to one thing when it comes mm. to theatrical distribution right now. Um, mm. I also think, you know, you know, compared to, say, Inside Out, when you have, like, Amy Poehler, if parents are taking their kids to stuff, if they recognise the name of someone, they're mm. more likely going, oh, yes, I can listen to, like, Amy Poehler doing the lead voice of, like, in whatever it was, or, like, Tina Fey, or, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Um, I think that you're caught in a, I think Disney Plus has helped thing, but not everyone's on Disney Plus.
2: I I think if you look at the box office for this year, like there's clearly the like all these financial crisis that is happening globally and insecurity and stability. Yeah. I think is having an effect on people's movie going habits. I don't think yeah, there's probably that much to do with the movie that caused it. It's probably a conversation of like. Advertising kids are who grew up during COVID are so trained to watch movies at home that it's probably quite difficult to get them to the theatre now. So I think like big family movies are probably going to struggle for a, a while. They'll probably come back, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But I think it's a bit of a, a tough time.
0: When Spider-Man No Way Home did amazing well. Amazingly mm-hmm. well. And I was like, oh my God, is, that, is it back? And it's like, there's mm-hmm. so many different things that went into that the fact that it did so well, Establish yeah. established character. Like, people know that if they're going to go see this film, they're going to get bang for their buck. And it, But the thing is about certain mm. other films, if you've got a family film, it is exactly what you said, Clarice. It's like, if they have to if they have to pay for individ, each of them to go to the cinema, food to get their travel, there's a lot that goes into actually going to the cinema nowadays. If they're yeah. unsure about, if they look at the film, it's like, oh, I don't know if that's like a concept like I'm kind of getting into. If it's going to be on Disney+, Plus, maybe I'll wait. You know, there's like... So many advertising, marketing spend, all this type of stuff. Like, I do think to put it down to one thing is mm. ask any distributor. They'll be like, there's like, <laughs> yeah. there's like See? six, seven things mm. that are going on that all contribute. To- yeah, exactly. Spider-verse is out. Like yeah. it's competing with other things that people yeah. know.
1: See, you say all of that and all of those are very good points, but the number one film at the box of it this year, which has made over a billion, is Super Mario Bros.
0: Yeah, but that's an established. Yeah, because it's Mario. Su- everyone knows what Super Mario is. <laughs> mm. Like no one yeah. knows what Elemental is. Like they look at it, it's yeah. like, oh, do, am I going to enjoy this? Like again, it's but this there's Super Mario is one of the most recognizable names in the world. Plus Chris Pratt. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> again, it's all these things. It's which
2: of who it's I found well. out. So He's incredibly popular in Korea for some reason. <laughs> That's what I found out this week. Chris Pratt is like the number one celebrity in Korea.
1: What? Wow.
2: He's yeah. loved there. I don't know why. I don't know if there's a particular reason but um, he does all the Fortnite ads there where he just comes on and he's like I'm Chris Pratt, Korea, you should buy Fortnite. That's the ad. <laughs> yeah. That's
0: right. And with Super Mario Brothers you've got the parents who play it kids who now play it (laughs) like Mm. that that was like the most surest thing of box office sales
1: Mm.
0: that you could
2: ever ask for
1: so it would seem
2: wow i mean look we are gonna decide the fate of elementals box office at the uk though with our (laughs) screen stream or skip hannah i'm gonna say stream although i did cry at the end
1: I'm going to say screen. What we'll the monies?
2: And, um, I, yeah, I'll, I'll say screen. I thought it was really nice. From from one child of immigrants trying to please their grandmother. <laughs> it's the whole thing with the grandmother and elemental. To uh, another child of immigrants trying to please their grandmother. <laughs> but this one's not animated. It's real people. This is Shibu.
1: We're going to a private flight. The outfit, all is Hey, man! We can't go. We family, not go. We can't go. We can't
0: go. Shab, shabu ranks. Shab, shab, shabu ranks. Eight gold rings like I'm shab, shabu. Shabu, just shabu. Uh, <laughs> not shabu ranks, <so> a Jamaican artist. <laughs> This is actually about Shabu, a precocious and charming 14-year-old who owes his grandmother 1,200 euros for her car that he's just trashed. He's grounded for the summer until he earns enough to pay her back. But luckily, Shamira was already making a film about the working-class Rotterdam neighborhood of De Pepeclip, where he lives, and she became his chaperone for the summer. But Shabu has bigger plans because he is going to be famous. So this is a documentary. It's directed by Shamira raffaella uh, also i think this is a tape collective production um who are right. who are really cool um like like female uh women of color led uh collective of uh, movie programmers and now they're producing the stuff so shout out uh tape collective um so i didn't get a chance to see this before we recorded um so i guess I'd really love to know. So this seems like the. It's always interesting to me when the uh, the documentarian is a part of the film. So um, so Clarice, can you tell me how well that worked? And you know, because again, it's that kind of. Is there a sense of you know the I mean it's not objectivity in 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 documentaries because it's all everyone's got subjective point of view when they create and they edit and stuff. But I suppose how much in having the documentarian. In the film, kind of ha- help you um, get into the life of Shabu.
2: Yeah this this one was so interesting because I think y- you could easily pass this for a fictional film. Mm-hmm. Like if you go in and this is one where you have to kind of read what it is before you go watch it because um, it could it could easily be a narrative. Yeah, a narrative feature there's so much about the structure and the way that it's edited there are like punchlines edited into the movie that is like that's fictional like it's not documentary because it's the narrator kind of placing a story upon the footage um but I don't say that in a negative way I think it's really interesting to see like how this really ordinary kid's life (laughs) Uh, contains all the drama necessary for like an hour. And I think it's like an hour and 15 minute movie where Mm -hmm. like, yeah, he's, like crashed this car and he's despairing because his grandmother's so angry at him and then he's got this girlfriend and their relationship is so dramatic
0: <laughs> kind of for
2: no reason <laughs> in the way that 14-year-old relationships are cuz he's all like i've got bigger things i need to still <laughs> honor with my family <laughs> and she's like babe but i love you <laughs> um so I, it's yeah it's sort of funny and I think because you know this is not a this is just about a kid's life and it's not really about an overly sensitive subject like there are moments in it that touch on kind of violence and inequality but it's more background stuff mostly it's just fun summer kid times (laughs) so I think the ethical question of how much did the documentarian like construct certain scenes maybe or feed them lines or say, you know, hey, sit here and talk about this. I think that's not as pressing an issue here because ultimately it there's no negative effect mm. from it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: And, it, you know, it serves the purpose of making him a bit more famous. <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> yeah, it makes the kid look cool. So, like, I don't think Shabu would ever be angry yeah. at how he's represented because he seems like the protagonist <laughs> of a... He's main like character. 80s. <laughs> yeah, he is so main character energy in this, and I feel like he must love it.
0: <laughs> so, Aman, can you tell me then a bit about, like, on that, like, tone, the kind of, like, humour of it? I mean, it sounds to me that it's it, like you said. It's bordering on. You think this could be mockumentary, like Christopher Guest esque, <laughs> but um, obviously real. So, can you tell me a bit about like that? How that works? And I suppose if there is moments of um, poignant moments as well, because you know, as you said, there's a gr- the the grandmother and its kid. Like that's a big kind of thing in certain households where if the mother's not present. You know, kind of those things about that kids growing up in a way that's not the conventional kind of 2.4 children situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, now the tone there's a nice thread of humour running all the way through it, um, but there is more than a sense of realness to it as well. Even though, as Clarice mentioned, there are times when for a split second you're thinking, what strings are being pulled behind the scenes here? to get certain uh to, to get a certain shot or to get a certain discussion going in the direction that it's going. Um but yeah I found it to be funny and there are a number of poignant moments uh all the way through, especially near the end. Um the end is very, very heartwarming. Um I'm not going to explain why. I don't want to spoil that moment because it's really it made me smile and it was great. But the last like 10 minutes of this, not only do we get like a really great um, speech from Shabu, which really sort of hits at a lot of the themes of the film and really crystallizes his journey in a powerful way. This is basically a film about a kid learning how to be an adult. Um, and he's still, he's, he has, he's not at the end of that journey, but he's made a number of strides by the end of the film and he has a really great speech that acknowledges that um but yeah there's there's the reappearance of someone very close to him shall I say that really is very very poignant and heartwarming and wraps the film up in a really really nice way so I had a good time
0: so um just trying to understand a little bit more about like um <clears throat> the the kind of how it's shot is it quite you know fly on the wall is it just purely that sort of thing or is there kind of like separate interviews talking heads like is there anything in this kind of style of filmmaking that was quite uh not it, I suppose it doesn't have to be innovative but something that you quite enjoyed um it kind of had its own like sort of accent characteristic that kind of as Shamira Raffaella that you're like oh I'm interested in this filmmaker
2: it's shot basically like it is shot like a narrative feature like there's cross-cutting between the two sides of a conversation um and there's certain there's like blocking in this movie Uh, (laughs) so definitely she was telling people where to sit because sometimes you look at the shots and you're like Mm, this is very Mm. well blocked there's no way those kids (laughs) just happen to sit like that Mm. Uh, I would say the thing I really enjoyed the most was the editing I thought the editing was really fun uh like there's a scene where he's on the phone with his girlfriend and she's talking about how she's she's got like a male friend and so he's freaking out and she's like he's like tell me about him she's like Oh, and I think he goes, is he tall? And she's like, yeah. And then the <laughs> score, there's something like the score kicks in and it's like, wow, wow. <laughs> 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 there's really there's some really and there's a really great scene as well where he's um at an arcade and it's like a racing car game and they blend the the noise of the car into oh i can't remember it's like someone in his family shouting at him like the the him getting told off like the sounds blend together it's really well done so there's all these very nice touches that again like sort of fictionalize the movie but i think in a way that isn't negative like it just makes it i think it's it's a nice demonstration of how all of our lives are quite cinematic in a way and there's there's drama and interest and beauty and art in in just very ordinary people's lives so that was it's cool I sort of liked that element of it
1: just follow me around for the day film it and then put a Hans Zimmer score behind it and you've got cinema I'm telling you (laughs)
2: that's really (laughs)
1: dramatic I mean mean, my life is dramatic Clarice okay (laughs) Needs that dramatic half in the score to reflect that. Can I, can I
0: ask, how does he want to be famous? Is he got like music, or what? What's his kind of thing? It's yeah, he wants okay. To be a, so then, a okay. Let's. So the raps, the bars, are they good?
1: <laughs> they are not great, but the spirit and the energy behind it is. And again, he's just such an endearing focal point of the movie. You are rooting for him. From the from the first moment on, really, mm. um, and I really like that, and, and 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 there's a nice little payoff to that again near the end. Chris, you mentioned the score that also deserves uh, sort of more talk because by by a composer I haven't heard it before called Michael Verkamp, um, but it's really really great, uh, not only in stitching together certain scenes, uh, but also just in certain scenes like the one Chris pointed out um sort of yourself um very jazz infused, very blues infused, but I really, really like that element to it as well. Um I just love how also it felt very relatable in that when you know you've really messed up with your parents, with your faults, like it feels very life and death to a degree. And that absolutely came through with Shabu all the way all the way through the film. I mean uh,
0: it is it's, life and death. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm saying. You really feel that coming through and you, again, you're rooting for him not only with the music, but to make amends uh, with his faults.
0: Okay, well, uh, so this is out in cinemas, yeah? So it's a screen, stream or skip, is that it? Okay, Clarice. Mm-hmm. Screen. Amon?
1: It's a screen for me. This is actually my favourite release of the week wow. because the next one we're talking about isn't coming out until next week. Um, but this is really the good. Screen.
0: I think I might go watch this on a screen.
1: Yes, our work is done, Clarice. We did it. We have convinced Flint.
0: Yay. So from from one protagonist with main character syndrome to another. (laughs) (laughs) Here's Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one.
3: Our lives are the sum of our choices. Cannot escape the
2: past.
4: Ethan, this mission
3: of yours
2: is going to cost you dearly.
0: The world is changing,
3: truth is vanishing, war is coming. <laughs>
1: Lalo Schifrin, all-time great theme. Ethan Hunt and the IMF team must track down a terrifying new weapon that threatens all of humanity if it falls into the wrong hands. With control of the future and the fate of the world at stake, a deadly race around the globe begins. Confronted by a mysterious, all-powerful enemy, Ethan is forced to consider that nothing can matter more than the mission not even the lives of those he cares about most. This is directed by Christopher McQuarrie and it stars Mr. Tom Cruise, Bing Rames, Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson, Isai Morales, Vanessa Curry, Pom Clementiath, Henry Cerny, and Haley Atwell. Uh, Hannah, you had the pleasure of speaking with Miss Atwell, did you not?
0: I did. Here's the interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Haley was great. Uh, we talked about... She said something though in an interview, which I was like, I don't think that's true. I know like there's lots of pr- practical effects in um, Mission Impossible, that's Champion, but she was like, there's no CGI green screen. I was like, I'm, I was like, there is.
1: There's always. There's, there's always. always. <laughs> anyway, <I> sorry. <saw> it. <laughs> it's like literally. Yeah, I
2: literally you, could tell you, you the shot that I was yeah. like, that is CGI. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway,
0: but no, it was really cool talking to her about like the characters play, going from like, you know, being Captain Carter, like Agent Carter, who's all about the greater good, whereas Grace is all about her- the good of her own self, like in this film as a mm. professional thief. Um, uh, yeah, and Stance, I, of course, like we started chatting about Far and Away because that is my thing now, that I will try and get far <laughs> away into every conversation I can possibly think of. Uh, and also I, a little bit at the end about like AI, because AI is the big bad and considering uh, the use of AI, Uh, in certain uh, Hollywood settings. uh, It was, uh, I wanted to see what she felt about it. Anyway, but, um, you know, don't listen to my summary. Just listen to it all. Here it is. Haley Atwell, welcome to the Fate of Black podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the first thing I want to talk about is, and it might be a little bit of a spoiler, but I don't care. But the moment when you get out a hairband and tie your hair up, I felt so seen and represented. (laughs) Was
3: that like that, like the face you just pulled? I was like,
0: oh, okay, that was like a moment. Did you I'm add that so, in?
3: So pleased you've mentioned that because you're the first person that's mentioned it. And when we came up with the idea on set, um, we just because the, the it was Amy and Jenny, my hair and makeup team, and Jill Taylor, the costume designer, mm. and Tom and McHugh and I, we were discussing you know any changes that needed to be made or coats needed mm. to be taken off and what needed to happen for me to do this, the next stunt, and the women were like. She puts her hair back, and we're like, "Well, what, you know, where has she kept her hairband? Around her wrist, because every girl's got a yeah. hairband around her wrist." Like, I did have one earlier. It's like I took it off, like when yeah, I went to the gym. Was, it's, it's like, ex- yeah, I'm the same exactly. It's always there. Yeah, and um, thank you for saying that because it, it's, it's. And also, I love the fact that it's in the film. You yeah. see, just having a moment because
0: there are too many like action films where I see these amazing female characters and their hair just flipping around. Like, they, it's like no. That's in your face. It's like- That would like, never happen. Never I happen. Totally, no. totally agree with you. So yeah, that is true representation. Um, so you, I mean, you're like no strangers to spies, but you also did a spy podcast. Yeah. And so I wonder if there's anything you kind of gleaned
3: from doing those stories that you took into taking on this role. It was, um, it was the exact opposite experience <laughs> because, because most of the time I was in my pajamas. <laughs> Uh, I was in, we were in lockdown, I was at home and I had to get, um, actually it was pretty Mission Impossible. I had to kind of work out the um, sound insulation, which involved cupboards and blankets Yeah. and dogs scratching at the door going, what's going on? Why can't <laughs> I come in? And they'd come in, but they're both French bulldogs, so they snore a lot. Yeah. So they, you'd get that on the radio, on the mic. So they'd have to be let out all the time. And it was pretty, so I'd be Constantly going. Sorry, wait. Um, sorry, it's the dog. Oh, it's a plane. Oh, I'm sorry, I banged into something. Um, but the the excitement of being able to see a spy thriller sort of like unravel like that as you go along in real time is is so exciting. It's a really fun genre, so it it kept me entertained during lockdown.
0: Oh my god, yes.
3: Yeah. I think there's so many like podcasts
0: like that came out of
3: lockdown. I mean, mm-hmm. it was terrible, but also. Great for creativity. Well, it shows resilience, yeah. and exactly, In adversity, we creative beings will create. So you, uh,
0: so McHugh, I love that everyone's like, oh, it's McHugh, that's his like, I'm now gonna call him McHugh.
3: Yeah, although Robert. he was in the Arctic, we called him the walrus. Oh, right. Because he, he is an extraordinary tash. <laughs> That the tash froze, <gasps> so it just became two icicles. Oh, that were like here, like this, and I loved it. I would, I'd keep giving me notes, and we discussing something in minus fifty-five degrees wind chill, and I'd just be going, yeah, it's like a glacier. <laughs> I'm trying to
0: imagine it now. Yeah, that is very distracting. we're trying to do serious work here, please shave your mustache. <laughs> um, but he saw you on stage in the pride. Yeah. So I wonder, like. Um, I I think it's so interesting with stage work because there's a sense of, um, you know, uh, you kind of allow a little bit more imagination than you do getting on film. Like, there's a sense of real realism there. But you work a lot with CGI. So, like, green screens and stuff like that. So I wonder, like, how much doing stage work informs doing a big film like this,
3: if at all. Well, we don't use CGI in mission, so it's all real.
0: No, there's, like, no green
3: screen. no. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's it, what you see is we're there doing it. So the but the the, the imagination kind of in a way remains the same. The work ethic remains mm-hmm. the same. So I think with stage, you know, you you're you're working out your physicality on that stage that tells a story through physical behaviour and also obviously vocal power, which you need less of in film. It has to be a lot more contained, mm-hmm. a lot. It's, it's for one thing, which is for the camera, whereas on stage it's for a mass audience. Mm-hmm. And so what you're trying to just be in tune with who your audience is, um, and then accommodate the size that it needs to be to do that. And so I think there's a there's a, a discipline, d- slightly different disciplines, but the same work ethic involved in working out what it is that this needs on any given time. And then also in a rehearsal, you, you have six weeks to throw out different options of a line mm. reading mm. and try different things with your scene partner and your scene partner remains the most important person on that stage because you can tell when if two actors are on stage and they're acting their own performance for themselves yeah. there's a disconnect but when you I love watching actors that are so alive to each other that mm. any sort of raise of an eyebrow or look the other person is clocked and is yeah. throwing something back and it creates this wonderful sense of chemistry and rapport.
0: I think about like, have you seen Opening Night, John Cassafetti's? Yes. And that endless sequence where like, it's them and you're like, oh, is this, this is like the perfect
3: example of like, just two actors vibing and just working with each other. Completely. And I love that feeling because it's, that's the electricity between the Mm. both as opposed to one person overacting the other, or, you know, there's a disconnect. And that is the thing that, you know, when we look at the Rome car chase sequence, that's all the two shot. And the reason why it could be a two shot as opposed to looking back then going like, take one was great for Hayley, take five was better for Tom, let's intercut to create mm. like the chemistry back and forth. She smiled at him in in that bit, so add that bit in. All of it was a two shot. And that was because we were connected and everything that he would offer, I would I would be there responding to. And it created this um, this kind of like, this aliveness to the scene that We just wanted to sustain and find a ways to keep that going because that was the thing that we knew that was also gonna bring real levity Mm. to the franchise, their kind of cat and mouse relationship. You know, we looked at a lot of films like Paper Moon, The Sting, you know, His Girl Friday, Mm. To Catch a Thief, Thomas Crown Affair, uh, those 70s heisting movies. The original. Okay, cool. Uh, and, <laughs> Although and, I do love the Renoir trilogy. Yeah, one. just different. It's like... <laughs> different. <laughs> um, and and kind of going. I don't even like things like ordinary people, which is one of mm. Tom's favorite films. And he's he's looking for character and everything. And he's also looking for what what the camera picks up in terms of character. You know, so even in the screen test, he would go, "It's really interesting when the camera's positioned in that way and the light's coming over across your face here. You actually look like you're withholding the information. And you, but in this one." with a light in this particular way or this particular angle or camera technique, you look totally vulnerable and open. So you're seeing what the camera is picking up and then working out what the movie wants to be as opposed to trying to impose what you think the movie Mm. should be. And I think, I spoke to
0: Rebecca before about like how, and I think you've said this about, it's kind of develops as you go along. Like it's, there's not really a straight kind of script. So like how, can you like tell, talk me a bit through like how you build this character who is like, we want you in this film. Yeah. We haven't really worked out who she is. Yeah. How do we collaborate and build up this person to who she becomes on screen?
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it, yeah, that's exactly how it works. You know, I didn't have a name. We didn't know in, in what capacity I would be with Tom. We knew we had certain set pieces that we were working towards in terms of the visual ambition of the piece. A lot of the, as you go along, is to do with you watching movies together, having a common film language, like the films i I'd, I'd referenced before. Um, and then also McHugh and Tom are listening to my normal speech patterns. Mm. They are also look how I am on set. They're looking at kind of where my funny bone lies. They're seeing if I'm more of a goof or am I'm more about surreal comedy. Um, Which one are you? Ah, uh, total goof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, then they'll also kind of go, you know, she's just... The the camera actually picks up this particular quality in her and there's a mischievousness. Mm. And for me, internally, I'm going, like, keep present, keep awake. I don't know what I'm doing. Make up as I go along throughout different choices. This could end up in the film or not end up on the film. So I, I end up... The quality of me just trying to make it up as I go along to them comes across in the camera as mischievous playfulness, spontaneity, hypervigilance. And so that became kind of emerging that sense of artful dodger consistently mm. inconsistent pulling the rug from his feet without intending to because she's not calculating or she doesn't she's not doesn't enjoy ruining people's lives she's no. just trying to survive and so from From those points, I then internally work, worked backwards and went, well, what's the psychological profile of a character who is like that? If this is how she physically behaves mm. why is that? What's going on for her emotionally because then that would often give me choices to to offer them later on about how she could emotionally or psychologically change. Do you like keep a diary or like write things out for yourself and then like throw it away yeah, sometimes i'll keep I'll write notes whether it's on my phone or in a mm. diary, and they might not make sense to anyone else or it might be like. Yeah. Oh eyebrow, mm. and I'll have <laughs> to remember like what that code was for, like at what point. And then suddenly
0: we'll see it in the film. i will be like, oh, there it
3: is, <laughs> there it is. Maybe just, just like get your eyebrow. Excuse me, directed. that's the Rock's move. You can't do that. Dwayne Johnson has already heard copyrighted. The Rock that. was a fan of Agent Carter. There we go. So I feel like you that's can have something we, That's if you smell what we have. <laughs> Agent Carter's cooking. <laughs> <laughs> but then with the so with the development of Grace, I was like, okay, if someone is a lone wolf, strictly single hyper hypervigilant, mm. looking for a get out at any opportunity, ducking and diving, maneuvering, flirting as a tactic when she needs to, working out what version of herself she needs to be to get what she needs or wants from you. This is a person who is in survival mode and survival mode often comes from traumatic experiences early in life where you, it wasn't mm. safe to relax. So the thought, okay, well then that becomes emotionally interesting for me because I'm going, we are as human beings of course wired for connection we are wired to be part of a tribe and belonging and community and if you if someone like her is not is fearful of that then that therein lies her pain which is the thing that we need to survive is the thing that she also fears the most mm. and that inner struggle becomes something useful and active to have so when ethan is saying to her you know your life will always matter more to me than my own or do you trust me her pet, her wound is, she's always wanted to hear that from someone. Mm-hmm. She's always wanted to be able to believe it from someone. She's always wanted to rely on someone else. But life has showed her that that's not safe. Yeah. And so she's having to deny her need. So then it means that later on, I when I improvised kind of having an emotional breakthrough moment, and McHugh went, I like that. <laughs> You've changed the trajectory of the plot in this scene. Okay, that's the heart of it. So it you was, feel like an author in part. Of the yes, you're, as well, you're. Yeah, you're yeah, tr- exactly. You're not going. I'm doing this. I think my character would do this. You just you're just feeling your way mm. through it, and then if the feedback is from Tom McHugh, they're like, "Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. explore that more." Yeah. Then you keep going, and that's how the collaboration happens. And I even like there's. I mean, it's like some of the
0: non-verbal things where. There's that bit again, like not to give it away, but there's a bit where you just don't let go of Ethan, yeah. and it's like, and it's like, oh, I get that. It's like yeah. so scary, and I really like that hum, the humanity of it, because you can obviously get these like femme fatale action babes who basically can do everything, and that and it's like, no, that person is actually really scared, and that's yeah. coming through, and it creates
3: this more complex character. Yeah, I it was I was so um. I was really adamant with myself that I would find ways to elevate her out of an archetype. Mm. No person on the planet is ever one thing. And I wanted to find ways where I could show a mixture of the nuance of contradictions, vulnerability, self-doubt and huge self-assurance, um, a recklessness and then also total control. Um, and and let pressures kind of dictate what quality is gonna come out. and. When you see that, you know, holding on. You know, I'm really holding on. And when he's, when Ethan goes, do you, tr- you do you trust me? And I'm just going, no. <laughs> yes. Oh, and then it's it's Haley going. Oh no, I better I better nod because I I'm gonna have to jump off this vestibule thing. <laughs> um, it, it, you're look, looking for those moments that go, yeah, she's real, man. She's real. That's this is, and in a way, I think it kind of invites the audience to kind of be grace. They're they're seeing this play out through her eyes a little bit, you know. Mm. A lot of people are going to relate and be like, uh, "Yeah, I'd be terrified too." That yeah. if I was there, going, "It's all right, guys. I got this. I know what I'm doing. I'm slick. I'm cool. I'm yeah. in- impenetrable. I'm strong." As strong women is the buzzword of the day. Yeah. You just wouldn't care.
0: No. Yeah, um, I so I watched Far and Away recently. It was yeah. doing a BFI film on film festival and it's yeah. the first time I saw, it. I saw it and I was like, how has it taken me this long? Because this film is amazing. Like honestly, yeah. and, I, and I, what, my, I bring it up because he, uh, Tom, well, Tom, there's a whole bit where he runs a lot and I was like, oh wow, well, so this yeah, is where really started yeah. running. Yeah. I was like, I mean, he runs so much in this movie, but he also like rides, rides a horse and I was like, oh, look at him, all these things that he's done in previous movies that kind of like add and build up to where he is now. Yeah. So for you, you know, obviously apart from like Aiden Carter and obviously the MCU, but there are any films that you've done, things that you've done for roles that kind of like prepared you?
3: That, that are this? consistent. all oh, things see, that you kind of mm. like picked
0: up or like something from another film that you've done, which might be so kind of like out of the blue, but actually it really worked for you because you had that memory, sense memory, yeah, or like
3: yeah. thingy or anything like that. Oh, that's a really good question. I'm actually, I'm also remembering Far and Away because I remember, isn't there a bit where he teaches... Nicole Kidman to That's properly the, wash clothes yes You're like no you need to scrub it and she's like um, <laughs> I had this big fight I recently
0: with like that. one about I think Far and Away uh, and even Nicole Kidman's character in it is far better than like Rose in Titanic just the way she's written because she goes on this like I love how it's now me to giving you my, my <laughs> opinions but, like I love Titanic Titanic is what it is but like Rose she never. There's not one line. It's three and a half a movie, and there's not one line that says, "I'd love to open up an art gallery" or something where she does something that's not related to like Jack or, or Billy Zane or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In In Far and Away, in the Callum and Shannon, she's like, "I want to open a horse ranch." And you know what? I'm going to bring you, Tom Cruise, because I'm a woman. I'm not allowed to get on this bloody boat, so you're coming and with me because sexism. And then she yeah. goes through that whole process of learning how to do yeah. these things. It's actually yeah. sensational.
3: Ron Howard. I'm going to watch like, it again. That's really good. It's really good. I think, like, in from that point, in answer to your question. The, the 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 thing I've sort of learned as I've gone along is when you start off in, in this industry, leaving drama school, you want a job, you hope you can. Mm. If you get a job, you're lucky enough to get a job, you hope you're gonna be lucky enough to get another one. And hopefully over time, the momentum will build so that you might be lucky enough to then be able to start making choices and be more discerning. And then after a while, you kind of look back and you go, wow, female representation is X, Y, and Z. Can I maybe elevate some of the mm. material a little bit more? Or what have I learned that feels like I could possibly have a bit more of a positive, progressive, productive input into the work that I'm doing? And I think for me, I'm looking at characters that are complex and becoming empathetic to mm. their contradictions and to their dark side as well as yeah. their light side. And so I found it very much with, you know, a character I played in a, in Criminal, which is a Netflix mm. one-off thing. Uh, the character played in Black Mirror, um, even Margaret Schlegel in Howard's End, and also ultimately Home, you Home, know, the play that I did at the Duke of York's by Ibsen. And when that was written, she was vilified in the press, that character, yeah. as being a harpy, a she-devil. And there was a review that I read from that time, You know, we're talking about 1800s here, where they said if that woman ever existed, she should be hung. And nowadays, what you see is a woman who was an autodidactic, mercurial, as you said, knew that she had no power or agency in the world, Mm. that she had access to his power if she got him on side. Mm. So she did everything that she could to make sure that she was able to fulfill her own destiny through making him take that action instead of her. And those things to me are like these, like opening up a gift box and going, this is the real Mm. gift here that drives her, not the sort of, I am bad, I am good, I am sexy, I'm gonna be objectified here. Like as all the parts that I've played or earlier in my career where I felt objectified or felt like I was being watched, I now go, whether I'm being watched or not, what am I watching? Yeah. What am I looking at? And it reminds me of, you know, um, that that John Berger book, Ways of Seeing. And he says, talking about sort of artistic representation, and he was like, it's really interesting looking at classical paintings where men Men, men in them are depicted as looking, and women are depicted as they're lo- they're looking at themselves being looked at.
0: Yeah. Oh my God, that was a line, that, have you seen um, C- Corsage? The figure yes. And
3: there's a bit, it's like,
0: I like, she's like, there's a line in which she's like, I like watching you watch me. And I was like. Oh, that's, that's straight out of John Berger. Yeah. That's an that's
3: absolute classic. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. I'm
0: gonna read that. My final thing though, because i am run out of time. So, AI you know what, ever since I watched like Terminator, I'm like, Skynet," is gonna happen. And I feel like, I love that we're getting into this, a- AI is like the mm. villain. Mm. How do you feel about, in the kind of reality, how AI is kind of coming into creative industries? Because mm. there's a big conversation about it. And I suppose, like how, w- w- do you think it's a positive and negative? Like, what's your feelings about? I feel,
3: I, I, I feel like power, money, AI, in and of itself is a neutral thing. It's it's how it's used, it's mm. how it's abused, it's who it's used by and what it's used for. Um, so the thing in of itself doesn't scare me because I think being fearful of something that is progressing regardless if I want it to or not, being fearful of it means you're not participating in the, the right use of it. Mm. And also it means that you're kind of like, you know, trying to deny its existence. I think, you know, with, with something I find it I find it really interesting as a concept in this as a villain of 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 uh, because it's an un it's it's not specific and it's kind of so ahead of you because it's already worked out your algorithm so it knows you better than a, you know yourself or what your next mm. move is. So I think that makes this the stakes of this installment so much higher than the last one because mm. it becomes of a, a, an absolute global threat. Um, and something that feels very prescient now. Mm. So I think it, it only adds to the thrill of this movie. Mm. ChatGBT could not write Mission Impossible or Debra. So <laughs> no, I exactly. agree on that. Thank you so much. Aww, it's been such yeah, a pleasure nice to chat with you. Thank you. Yeah.
1: So the villain that Ethan Hunt and the IMF team are up against in this movie is an AI known only as the Entity. I feel like if we were to take a drinking game every time somebody said Entity, we would have to be carried out of the cinema after this film. I heard that word a lot. But how do you feel that worked as a villain? The AI is an Entity and then also the point man for it being Gabriel played by Isai Morales. How do you feel that worked as the people that IMF had to go up against this time round? Hannah Flint, I'm going to start with you.
0: Yeah, I feel like um mission impossible has been up and downs with like villains like who's like a good i think philip seymour Hoffman was the best one correct mission three um although i do like do go I, I feel like mission impossible 2 gets so much fucking slack like like flack and i think it's actually a really great film uh i stand that i stand by that
1: it's my least favorite of the entire franchise but it's still as an action film dwarfs a lot of what we see blockbuster wise today which just goes to show you how consistent the mission impossible franchise has been i
0: just think like sometimes you have to accept some that came out in 2000 for a 2000 yeah. movie we should that was really cool like the, sorry i know i'm getting into mission impossible 2 now but i rewatched it, it's like <laughs> there's like a whole like weird, like john woo's like all over it like you know i mean mm. like the free climbing that was insane like into mm. eco like eco eco by um what's it called zap zap mama that's like so good like it's like cinema I loved it anyway um with this one I kind of like AI it's made sense um I I I really I think sometimes though with Mission Possible is that um it it's so focused on the action sequences that sometimes storytelling gets placed second fiddle so I do think like as much as like I really enjoyed this film I did think it was just a bit like okay so now this i don't know it was kind of the MacGuffin of this ai that's like everywhere it was fun it was fine but it was also i just didn't want to think too much about it to try like the logic of where this guy's mm. come from because i think there's a lot of things still unexplained and i and i think i assume in part two a lot of that is going to get explained because we get a setup for how ethan hunt knows that character in the past mm. and there's like on a Uh, a a, a spanish latino lady who gets killed and we're like oh no and and so but we still don't really understand we don't have the information there so it was i feel like it was withholding a lot of kind of key narrative plot points that would have made it that they i I don't know why they're doing that maybe to kind of maintain some sort of intrigue and mystery around ambiguity around ethan but i do think if that's what they're going to share in the second half i think it would have been better if they did it this side but there we go
1: that's interesting like for me storytelling wise i was very impressed by the fact that they took what was what has ostensibly been little more than an obligatory line your mission should you choose to accept it and turned it into the entire thesis of the movie i thought that was brilliantly done um Clarice, i'm going to come to you with that what did you think about this film essentially boiling down to choice and how they ran that through the entire narrative of the film.
2: Is that not the plot of every Mission Impossible movie? I that it's like, is my loyalty to the mission or to my friend Simon Pegg? Ugh, this is so hard. Yeah, they've already and established every it quite a lot. Time, they? He does both. Yes, I I don't know. I wasn't. I that seems like um, just normal day but what i liked about this movie is how much they treated everything like it was their day job there's a scene where there's a there's a bomb and they're like "Ugh, oh, the bomb's nuclear and it's like "Ugh, oh, mondays yeah <laughs> of course Hang the in bomb's there. nuclear. just like oh <laughs> yikes so i i sort of enjoyed the internal recognition that these characters have been doing this for so long that it is kind of repetitive at this point and yet, and we can get onto this, Christopher McQuarrie's direction is actually still finding new and, I guess, dynamic ways to shoot an action sequence. Which I think it's very impressive because they've, they've done a lot at this point. I don't know. Mm. I don't know what they do next, you know.
1: Mm. I'm sure they're going to up the ante one more time with Dead Reckoning Part 2. But let's talk more about the action What was your favourite sequence? I think for me, it might have been that opening cat and mouse chase with the Bond that you're mentioning, Chris. I just love the way that was edited. First of all, I thought that was fantastic. There's so much going on, but you are easily keeping track of all the different beats and what all the characters' varying objectives are. And there's a lot of comedy infused with that as well, um, because you got Shay Wiggum, who we didn't mention, but he's also in this film, and I think it's fantastic. Every time he tries to remove a face mask that's not there, I laughed. Brilliant. And then also, in addition to all of that, you have character moments as well, because that is when Ethan Hunt meets Grace, and we'll get more into that relationship in just a bit, but did you have a favourite action sequence, and what was it, Hannah?
0: You know what? I just want to kind of, like, before I say it, what I really like about the Mission Impossible franchise, and certainly as uh, why Tom Cruise is such a great uh, leading man in this is his. We, we he's a really he's really funny. Like Tom Cruise is a really mm. funny person, and as you see, if you track him throughout there, there's a playfulness. Like he is a bit like you know a rap scallion and stuff. And I think certainly he's got older. There's a, he's got a bit a little bit more serious. But what I, what I like about the Mission Impossible is that because he's got these old hands, like the kind of big, you know being raised lufer. And Benji around him, and like again, bringing Grace in. I love the fact that she's she's not the kind of she, she can do everything. It's like, wait, I don't want mm. this. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm just in my life. Let me just steal mm-hmm. things. Um, and I think why those action sequences work so well is because of that kind of humanity that comes through. Of he's sure he's kind of at this point superhuman, but when he does stuff, it's like what the fuck? Like, there's a moment, it's like, wait, you want me to do this? Like, can I do it? (laughs) There's no, like, there's no sense of like, assumption that he can just do it, right? And that's what Mm -hmm. I think really works. And also, you know, there's one bit, you know, we've seen the trailers, seeing the motorcycle off the cliff thing. What I love is that when you see the closer, and again, this is a, a testament to not just Tom Cruise, but like the, camera crew, the people shooting it, Mm -hmm. who are getting that stuff as well. There's like a look Mm -hmm. in his eye and you're just like, oh, there's Tom Cruise having the fucking time (laughs) of his life. Like he's like, (laughs) every time I look at him, it's like, he Mm -hmm. loves doing this and his commitment to it is Mm -hmm. actually really awe inspiring. And like, you feel the adrenaline Mm -hmm. rush because he's feeling it. Like that's why the commitment to stunts in this franchise is so important because that really, you know, he's putting his life on the line. Mm-hmm. in very real situations so yeah that's what I really like about it but I think my favorite I think my favorite has to be the train sequence at the end specifically between when Ethan and Grace there's a bit there's some and I talk about it a little bit with um uh with Haley in the interview but there's a moment like where they have to do this jump thing and mm-hmm she won't let him go. And I was just like, that's what I mean though. That human moments in the stunts where it's like, oh no, this is really scary shit. Mm-hmm. They're not Marvel heroes. Mm-hmm. These are human beings who've got It's like those moments that you're like, oh my God, I know we want to survive, but I think like, will they survive? And I think that's what it means. Like, the stunt isn't just performing it. It's a sense of, are they going to survive it? And I think mm-hmm. Mission Impossible does a very good job of making you worry for them and not assume that they're just
2: going to survive.
1: 100% agree with everything you just said. please your favourite set piece.
2: Oh, well, there's a specific bit of the train sequence that, Hannah, is kind of what you're referring to. I'll call it the Lara Croft, the Tomb Raider level. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really fun. <laughs> uh, but I also really liked the desert. There's a desert mm. shootout where they're in a sandstorm. Yeah. And it's such a nice yeah. counterbalance to the gigantic train sequence because that one is all about stealth and like precision and accuracy. And I was watching Rebecca Ferguson in that sequence being like, Yeah, this is exactly how I play Fortnite. <laughs> 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 she's so cool in it because she's just like sniping people just yeah like, pew, pew, and they're rolling mm-hmm. around and they're getting another gun out and going pew 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 like i mm-hmm. that's what i i love about these movies is that it's not there's a real sense of like balance and thought behind we're not just shoving like random car chases in each one has mm. a like a character to it and an aim and a goal and a style and i oh. and i
0: think sorry to jump in again but also like like what mission impossible films are sometimes i kind of feel like at this point they're kind of like musicals in that the action is didn't just action for action's sake there's also something that kind of pushes the plot forward we learn something new about the characters in it mm-hmm. and i think that's really great and as you said like clarice about like that sequence which was really good even like there's an alleyway sequence fight with pom who like Paki looks, she's like the manifestation of chaos to me, her character, I love it. It's like, <laughs> it's like the way that she's just there, was like lead pipe. It's like, I'm kind of waiting for it to go. D-dun, d-dun, d-dun. It's like, it's like the outside of something I'm waiting for a break. But that even at close combat, it's like, oh, this is what I love. It's got the very intimate kind of grounded, close combat fight sequences, but then got the massive like stump, stunt st- situation. I think that's that's it. So it's not all the same thing, which, Compared to Indiana Jones, which we saw, which now we can talk about, I saw Mission Impossible and then I saw Indiana Jones later that day. Mm. And it was kind of so, it was, you know, apologies to Indiana Jones, but Mission Impossible ruined that film of me because <laughs> I'm seeing them do similar stunts, but so much better. And then you watch Indian mm. Jones, like, I just saw this. And this is like drugstore version of these stunt sequences. So yeah, mm. it really, I really shout out all the people who are involved in um, creating the drama and creating those kind of stunt numbers because, you know, they really sung.
1: Yeah. Uh, I spoke to the Mission Impossible Stunts Coordinator Wade Eastwood, I think last year for a feature. Uh, he is incredible. Um, and he did a fantastic job on this film. couple of things to say with what you were saying there. but talking about video games. That train sequence at the end, I was getting major Uncharted 2 vibes. I'm not sure if you played that game, but no. there's a whole big train sequence that that oh, scene looks so unbelievably similar to. Even the decor in the carriage looks similar to what well, is in Uncharted I'm sorry, team. but the Orient <laughs>
0: Express outdates Uncharted. <laughs> so <laughs> if, then... if, if, if Orient Express, if they've copied Orient Express, the Orient Express, <laughs> then that's yeah, on Uncharted.
1: I mean, you can't Uncharted has not, not, not been critiqued, but it's very well learned that uncharted is taking a lot of its action sequences from movies like indiana jones uh but i i, I got major uncharted two vibes watching that train sequence which is fine, which is fantastic the other thing to say pom clementi if, i'm not sure if anybody in the history of cinema has had more time or more fun behind the wheel of a humvee than that woman <laughs> because when she's driving that car or that truck she is having a blast and it comes to on screen and like Freaking love that! Um, before we go to spoilers and hot take, we should probably talk about Haley Atwell as the other big newcomer in this. I thought she was great. I thought Grace is a very unpredictable character. I love the chemistry that she had with Ethan. There is a scene, a car chase involving a sort of yellow Fiat Five Hundred, which is say again it's
0: a Fiat Five Hundred,
1: a yellow Fiat Five Hundred. And the comedy they infused with that scene, along with the tension, along with just the skillful action and the stunts, the mixture of all of those things, I thought was brilliant. Um, What did we think of newcomer Hayley Atwell in this film, Hannah?
0: Yeah, loved it. I loved it. And again, you know, you could say oh, she's doing another spy character after years of playing Agent Carter. And she's not, I don't think she's done playing Agent Carter. Um, but uh, yeah, she was complete opposite. It's interesting though, again, <laughs> going back to Mission Impossible 2, but Tandy <laughs> Wayne Newton is the co, like the kind of leading that. And she's also like, mm. uh, a professional thief. <laughs> but <laughs> the difference is, I quite like about this one, is get how we've come a bit further in the sense of, she's not obviously a romantic lead. She's not, like in Mission Impossible 2, May Newt's character's got a like, her ex-boyfriend is an IMF agent, do Grey Scott. And they're basically saying, you yeah. got to go date him again and fuck him again so that we can get in there so you can stop this like biochemical weapon. It's like, she doesn't have to do the femme fatale like, basically pimp herself out in order to like get ahead and i think that's sometimes a frustrating things in kind of certainly early ones is like the hypersexualization of female leads as the femme fatales whereas this one she's like no i don't want to be here please let me go i'm mm. trying to escape at every moment i love it you literally mm. cannot turn your back on her she'll be gone she will yeah. like and then again it's that kind of but there's also a sense of um you know I love I love the way her character has. She obviously presents this as this kind of posh girl, but she's brim through stuff like she's a survivor in that way. But then she's forced into a situation where she doesn't really have a choice because this is the thing. The what the thing about I'd say it's a, your mission if you choose to accept, and it's kind of like well, what's the other choice? Um, jail. <laughs> what do I get? Like I'm basically there's no such there's there's no freedom in joining the IMF. That I think that's the biggest thing about it. It's like and you go outside the system and like actually you're basically governed by other people bureaucracy awful powers who are basically telling you what to do and it's ba- and it's, it's like it's pick the lesser evil that's what the choice is and you hope the lesser evil that you choose is like saving the world but who knows in this thing because there's so many corrupt people
2: I, I like the character. I do find it a bit strange that she is meant to... They do that thing where it's like all the things she's been charged with and it's like fraud, theft, art theft. Um, So it seems like she, she should be really skilled and I don't know if it quite made sense that she couldn't do anything. <laughs> Even though, I Hannah, I do agree with what you say. It's nice to kind of have something that's different to the hyper-competent, like, matriarchal, kick-ass woman which I think the characters that we have at the moment are kind of good at sort of dancing around that trope because even Ilsa Faust, like she's partially because it's Rebecca Ferguson, doesn't feel as tropey as I think you would expect her to be. Um, but I was I was really rooting for Palm, And I she should have been in it more. I feel like they really underused her.
1: Um, I do not think she was the only person that was underused. And we might get into that a little bit more with Hot Take. Let us go to our screen, stream, or skip recommendations on mission colon impossible dash. You forgot the dash last time, Dead. Um, it wasn't on script, therefore. Uh, I only read
2: mean, what's on the script. I am wrong, but. <laughs> <laughs> on the
1: script. And. Was it, was it on the script earlier? Right Who there. knows? Yeah. Um, no, anyway.
0: no. In dash, the thing, it's not. No, if you look in the actual thing, there's no look. dash when the in the. Hannah, it, it's okay.
1: We screen. all make mistakes. It's fine. It's fine. I
0: am going to screenshot this and show
1: the receipt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm just going to read out the proper title. I'm um, sorry for, for earlier that we didn't do that mistake. But anyway, uh, mission colon impossible dash dead reckoning part one screen stream or skip hannah screen clarice screen but i will say
2: it did not end with the promise that tom cruise would ride a giant worm in the next one so i am less excited about this part two than a certain other part two that's coming out <laughs> where someone will be riding a giant worm <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, play. Uh, it is a screen for me, except this mission. I'll put this film second only to Mission Impossible Fallout uh, as my favourite of the franchise. Uh, it's really, really good and I'm excited to see how it all wraps up next year.
0: Now we've done our very cool, spoiler-friendly takes on the Mission Impossible. Dead Reckoning, Dash Pop. One dash. You got that Movies. Colon. semicolon. colon. <laughs> it's time for our. <laughs> day. Day. Hot,
3: hot,
0: hot, hot. Take, 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 ha 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 so um, okay, so let's get into the hot takes. So let's let's get let's talk about the elephant in the room that is the. Mm. Um, now you call it fridging. You think this is mm-hmm. Ilse Faust, played by Riff Beckham Ferguson? She was introduced in Rogue Nation. Correct. So Rogue Nation, Ghost Protocol, Fallout. This is a fourth um, Mission Impossible film. Uh, mm-hmm. You say it's fridging. I disagree that she got killed off. In the, in the, uh, in maybe what, like, this is a two hour, 40 minute movie, about an hour and 40 Mm -hmm. minutes in, right? Would you say? So, why do you consider it bridging?
1: (sighs) Okay, I've gone really back and forth on this since I've seen the film on both times. Um, here's what I say that I'll like about how they did what they did, first of all, because I'm very much in two minds about this to a degree. I was talking earlier about how a lot of this film boils down to choice. And honestly, I think one of the great things about the storytelling in this film, the thesis of the film can really be boiled down to that first scene with Ethan in this film where he receives the mission from the guy who has clearly just joined the IMF. And they recite the oath, and Ethan tells him that he made the right choice joining the IMF. Even though... Ilsa Faust has never been given that your mission should you choose to accept it. At every point in this film, she is making a choice to do the right thing. She is an IMF agent through and through, and I like that a lot. And even though it plays out the way it plays out, the fact that she is making that choice, they have that line afterwards, because um, Grace is like, she's dead because of me, and I think Luther is like, you're alive because of her. That's great. And it's one of my favorite lines in the film. Love that. But when I look at the definition of fridging, it says this a sexist trope in which a female character is killed to give a male character the chance to avenge her. And even though I like what I I like to a degree how it played out because of all the things I just laid out, at the end of the day, that makes what happens still a fridging because they make a point of it in the film that the Entity instructed Gabriel to kill Ilsa, in part to goad Ethan to want to avenge Ilsa by killing Gabriel, thereby ensuring the Entity wins, because at that point we think that Gabriel is the only person who knows the information about where the Entity is and what the Entity is and how to basically destroy it. So when I consider all that, even though to a degree I like how it played out, at the end of the day, it's a fridging. Please convince me otherwise. I want to be convinced otherwise.
0: My, my, I suppose my my thing is, um, you know, there have been male characters who have been killed off in the Mission Impossible franchise to move a plot forward. And I don't get me wrong, I will be the first to say that someone's been fridged, like, Literally, what was that Michael B. Jordan film? That was like the one where literally his pregnant wife gets murdered in the opening section. Because again, look at the origins of it. It's based on a comic oh, book trope yeah, no. where like a woman woman in refrigerators, that's where it comes from, where like mm-hmm. a loved one is like blah, 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 all this type of thing. Had, the thing is about, if she'd just been introduced in that film, <laughs> I would be like, yeah, that's a fridging. She's literally just been introduced to be killed. But she's gone on a whole journey on it
1: Mm -hmm.
0: i feel like you know certainly in past mission impossible things as well if it was like you know again the most most of the female characters have been killed off in some way michelle Monaghan hasn't been killed off her character was that was like a break away from it i think when you Mm -hmm. have farm when you don't just have one female character in anymore where it's actually there's more of them i don't know if i would call that like a very specific fridging. I just think like sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes people get killed to motivate them. I think, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I, I at this point where it is now, and the fact that we've got a few more people and the way it was positions of choice, I suppose she could have done it where it's like a choice between, I don't know, also and Faust and Benji. I don't know. Maybe that could have been a situation. But.
1: I've been speaking to a few people about this and there is a, uh, both of them have said that maybe benji should have been the one killed off because they already have the tech to the greek covered with luther um so yeah maybe
2: yeah i wouldn't i don't would think it's fridging because the what's offensive about fridging is that the the women only exist to be killed because yeah. that's the thing it's fridging is when it's like the wife or yeah. The, yeah the girlfriend who's like not really a part of the story and normally it's she, quite early she on She's created to die <laughs> Yeah, this just felt like a character dying. I think the only thing that it was mostly just funny to me is that it was like, oh, they got another like <laughs> white brunette European woman yeah. in, so they gotta like rotate. It's them like up. Star Wars. They do find it weird. <laughs> like Michelle Monaghan, then Rebecca Ferguson, then Haley Atwood, Tandy Wayne Newton. Like, it was also brunette.
0: Like it's like yeah. she's also British.
2: <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know. I'm like, that- why are all these women European? That's really weird. It's the real Star Wars, uh, <laughs> Star Wars, casting team.
0: Of oh, yeah. we've got to have a brunette lead.
1: <laughs> Absolutely yeah. agree with that. But is that in and of itself an issue for you? In that it feels like there can only be one <laughs> uh, sort of major female lead with the sort of because Rebecca Ferguson in this is a bit shortchanged even before what happens happens I think and again that's to the degree of like story mechanics which do work and I like how it plays out to a degree but it's almost like there can't be I like, also too female go ahead
0: well no I was gonna say sometimes decisions are made about availability <laughs> I wonder if it's also yeah. that she's doing June as well like and also the way they write mm. I, I wonder if it's Again, this is her fourth film in the franchise. This isn't just her. So I don't think it's... For me, this is not fridging because I think it's just a natural thing. She's in a job where she could die. She's an MI6 informant. Mm -hmm. Like, that is the risk that's going to happen. At some point, someone's going to die. Pretty much most of the people that Ethan Hunt is involved with has, has... been killed in some way, mm. right? Literally, that open of mm-hmm. Mission Impossible, his entire team gets fucking killed. <laughs> like that's yeah. that's the point. So this is uh, for you know trying to make this like a feminist franchise is the same because Ethan Hunt is always gonna be the survivor. Everyone, he's the main thing. Everyone who dies in Mission Impossible is to push Ethan's plot forward. So at, at yeah. this point. I don't know if I would say this is fridging in the kind of original set, sense that Gail Simone, who coined the term, would mm. say. But again, I don't know. That's just my opinion, man. And, mm. and and uh, you know, again, Pom is still around. She hasn't died. Yeah. She's got a pulse. Yeah. She's got a pulse. But we've, we've got, like, Vanessa Kirby's character is still around. She might be a baddie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's not, she's not, you know, maybe they have done a replacement thing. Like...
1: Mm. Here's here's another sort of reason why I'm okay with it to a degree in that I'm not sure how much more meaningful growth there was for Ilse Faust left. And the film even makes a point of the fact that she's stuck in a pattern of she gets into trouble, Ethan gets out of trouble, and then she gets into trouble again and the cycle repeats itself. And combine that with what you allude to Hannah in terms of she's got June she's got Silo which is really good by the way everyone should watch it um maybe and I don't know if Rebecca Ferguson wanted out of the franchise as well we don't know but I don't know when you For look me, at
0: she's a, I would have the, liked the, to have the, had the, a the, spin-off the, where it was like I'd love to follow Elsa Faust around but this is Ethan Hunt's world <laughs> And he's yeah. always going to be the main character. And it's like, you either fit in with his storyline or you don't. And I think she's had a good innings.
1: She has had a very good innings. What did you think of them choosing to not make the Ethan Ilsa romance as explicit as they could have done?
0: Well, I don't think it they were romantic. felt like they were going
1: in... You don't think they were romantic? Oh.
0: I don't think it has to be because I think he's a flirty person and also in their kind of in their kind of world, I think mm-hmm. I think he's just getting away from that. There was a real mutual respect there, and 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 you know she mm-hmm. is as cap. You know, that's what I like. She is as capable as Ethan Hunt. She can do all the stuff like mm-hmm. that, but it felt natural. Also, can I just say one thing? I really liked. You know, just a side thing. I like the fact that when she was in the desert, she was sunburned. <laughs> it's like yes, <laughs> yeah. she's <is> a very <laughs> pasty white woman. The reality <laughs> of that is that she would be really sunburned. <laughs> <laughs> little thing um, yeah sorry that's just my little kind of mm-hmm. thing to add but I don't really mind that yeah. it's not romantic because I don't know especially when he's 60 and every, all of his like co-stars are like 20 years younger now 20 odd years yeah. 20 years
1: younger mm-hmm. yeah I don't know if you guys have fully convinced me otherwise but it can be a lot to think about and I shall be thinking about it so there you go but it's 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 messy it's messy
2: the thing with the the female leads is that I don't know—is it not sort of a bit of a troubling trope that there was like the one woman of color? I know Angela Bassett was gonna be in it and she was busy, but she wouldn't have been it. There's a photo of her in the background. was like Indira Varma. Yeah, it's like a photo of, and I guess Indira Varma was like kind of swapping in <laughs> to the yeah. Angela Bassett. Um, But yeah, having like the the one woman of colour be the sort of silent, crazy person felt a bit I don't know, felt a bit tropey. And I am glad that she Dragon Lady it. (laughs) It was a little like I don't know. I mean I can't I I can't like speak on it, but I was watching it being like, This feels a bit old fashioned and I hope in the next one. She has more lines because I enjoyed the five lines that she had roll in French, and I enjoyed that. And I hope that I hope that this is only this is just because she's gonna be a bigger character in the second yeah. one. I think if it stays like that in the second one, it made me feel a bit weird. This yeah. is what
0: I'm a little bit kind of, and I just think with the this this recent thing that we're seeing a lot nowadays. Well, I say saying a lot, but like seeing a lot, but we're getting these part ones and twos. And I find Mm -hmm. it a bit frustrating because I feel like I don't... There's information that I should be able to have in this film to make it a complete story for me that works. And I think putting in a part two, it's kind of... I I, I, I don't know. I think that's just like a get-out-of-jail-free card of not doing the actual solid work of telling a a real strong story. We've seen like, you know, Dune part one and two is coming out. We've got Fast 10 part one and two... Uh, Spider-Verse I know it's like technically but it, it was originally conceived it was going to be part one and two but now they're doing beyond the Spider-Verse I think like so mm-hmm. I don't know I feel I've been you know I think cert- certain ones have done them better than others to explain certain things or give some development whereas I feel like this one again yeah it's that you're dropping in these like breadcrumbs and I kind of wanted some a little bit more resolution in this one like, this is the thing about Mission Impossible. It's so much fun. It's definitely worth seeing. But these aren't the best movies ever made <laughs> for when it comes to storytelling. Like, certainly for action, their stunt plotting is sensational. But when it comes to other elements of it, it really kind of shows that it's not as seamless as it. Wants to be especially for a two hour and 43 minute movie i don't know why they bring, why didn't they bring tanya way newton back that would be sick that's what i'd like they a, could have done part two they
1: could have brought tanya they could have brought paula Patton back from ghost paula Portugal. Patton. yes i forgot yeah. about
0: her yeah they kind of um, dropped the mark on the women of color really yeah. in this franchise
1: maggie q was in mission impossible three she's still around could have brought her back so yeah maybe you know Um, Dead Reckoning Part 2 all of these agents will pop up out of nowhere to help out Ethan in this life or death mission the final mission or they get back together and
0: kill
1: him (laughs) (laughs) or that I guess but you know on the subject of cliffhangers I feel like this one earned its cliffhanger and I feel like Spider-Verse earned its cliffhanger in part because the quality of the film was so high I'm excited to see how they're going to raise the bar again in the next films with the fast X. And this is not going to be a litigation of that, but if this feels like we're going to get more of the same and that, if we're talking about films that could have resolved in one film, that one, I think it felt like they could have done so. Um, but, you know, we are getting into the Fast 11, maybe fast 12, maybe fast 13, fast 20, if Vin Diesel has his way, I'm sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I I didn't mind that. And it felt like, I, it still felt like a complete experience to me, even though the story isn't complete in and of itself. And that's what you want from a part one. And I feel like this delivered on that. How was it for you guys actually watching that bike off a cliff stump in the actual film? Because for me, they have marketed that thing so much that it took a little bit of the magic away from the moment. I did like that 10 seconds into the jump, you get that close-up of Fuz, and you hear the full force of the wind he's fighting against as he's trying to pilot this parachute. I thought that was good, and that took me aback. But the actual jump itself, I feel like I've seen it so much in marketing that in the moment, it was cool, but I wasn't like, you know, going going crazy. or my 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 jaw did not drop watching it in the Well, cinema. you
0: know what, Amon? I think this goes back to our point of going to film watching as little as possible because you can choo- <laughs> yeah. you 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 made a choice there to constantly look at this <laughs> behind the scenes but stuff Well, it was
1: it was right in front of my face at times I couldn't turn away.
0: It's not. You know, what? hey, you know what you can also do, Amon. Hey, look, look. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So like, this great I, I close my you eyes. I close my eyes. I do think if you're gonna constantly look at things from the film and do that, you're not supposed to watch it. Several, I mean, they do it. They do, I I feel like that's gonna ruin your experience of it. So if you don't want to, if you want to have the kind of more purist form, don't watch as many trailers as mm. you can. Like or watch the behind the scenes stuff. It didn't ruin it for me. Mm. I'd seen the kind of behind the scene thing, and it didn't ruin it for me because. I'm watching it within the parameters on the context of this film. I'm not thinking, so, it, yeah.
1: To clarify, it didn't ruin it for me. I still enjoyed the moment. I just it took a bit of the jaw-dropping nature of it away from me. That's all. And um, and that was yeah.
0: a choice you made. You choose <laughs> the choice to accept add marketing <laughs> materials. Uh, and yeah, there you go. There's there's the cautionary tale. <laughs>
1: yeah um other things i liked i think this is probably ving rames's best mission um got a lot of really great comedy beats no one is safe from phineas freak <laughs> i like that line in particular um i like his banter with benji uh and ethan and i like the fact that he always has ethan's back he always sees the bigger picture he's the one who asked the question before that big final mission with Ethan and Gabriel, like, are you gonna kill Gabriel? Like, don't kill. Gabriel. We need, still need Gabriel. He always sees the bigger picture. I, I've always liked Luther as a character. Uh, I feel like this was his best showing, uh, so that was great. And the score by Lombard, I liked it. I prefer the score for Mission Impossible Fallout, where I think it had a better balance of percussion and melod- melodic elements. Here, it's very percussion heavy, and I didn't hate that, but it wasn't. It also wasn't my favourite um, in in the overall sort of realm of Mission Impossible Scores. But it was still really, really strong. I'm excited to listen back to it on its own. Uh, Lorne is one of the best, most hard-working composers working today. And he came up with the good to, again, for the most part. So, yeah, it's good.
0: I love Shea Wiggum.
1: <laughs> and great. I <laughs> like that it reunited
0: uh, him with Haley Atwell, because he's also in the Agent Carter TV series. Uh,
1: That's true! So. He dies. I Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> uh, but he's very good in that. Um, yeah, I've forgotten about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Also, I thought that was really fun. I thought the funny sequence of like, one thing I didn't, was stupid to me. I mean, there's a funny sequence where Grace has to become the white widow. Mm-hmm. But what didn't make sense to me is like, you've got this whole kit where you can literally, you don't even explain science, but you can create a mask and yet you couldn't find mm. any blue contact lenses. <laughs>
4: <laughs> she, her eyes are brown
0: Vanessa Kirby's are blue and I'm like how is no one like looking at this her right hand man who've known her for years shes he's not going to go wait why are your eyes brown do you know what I mean like that for me was a real silly moment
2: also oh, She was meant, this is my specific problem with why her character didn't quite work. She was meant to be successful at like fraud and subterfuge and theft. And yet she could not pretend to be that person for the life of her. Because she sat down and she was immediately like, oh gosh, I don't know what to do. Oh, oh, this is so awkward. It's like, could you, I, I do just feel like it did quite ring true that a master thief, couldn't hold a conversation but
0: maybe but 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 i i i agree with you but i also think that could also be the world she's not had the world ending stakes on her shoulders that's it's like there's one thing to do but she was completely like it's It's like blissful ignorance of like oh i'm just doing this but when you've literally got all this stuff and you're lit you if you don't do this the world will end. <laughs>
2: I think yeah. that
0: was the yeah. pressure.
2: I think if they just made her less of a, it's just that list of things at the beginning made me think she was the world. Yeah. she was yeah. like Catwoman. She had a Catwoman list of crimes. I feel if they had just cut <laughs> yeah. that down by fifty percent and made her like a normal thief, I would have been like, I one hundred percent believe this master thief. I had
1: no trouble no. With it. like I don't care <laughs> how masterful you are. The first time you're wearing a face mask the stakes of the situation i don't care how good you are you will be freaked um and she you know she just about held it not together enough to fool kettridge um i guess that's not i mean <laughs> he's 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 a cia uh, agent you know whatever but um he has been fooled by ethan a few times at this point so take that for what you are but um yeah she held it uh, together enough, and i do like the fact that when it came, I, I I like how they um visualized that decision that she eventually makes to do the right thing. Um, <laughs> the the phone on the transfer that she's about to to sort of go through. If she accepts it, then that's bad for the mission. If she declines it, then she's an IMF agent for real. I like that they they visualized it that way, and she to, obviously makes the choice to do what she does. I thought that was clever. I like that.
2: They should have, um, they should have done that sketch from, I think you should leave where he's around the mask and he's like, "The shit's too heavy. I, I need to get out. <laughs> that would have been funny. Yeah. For me. <laughs> well,
0: okay. Well, that's the end of our show for today. Thanks for tuning in and happy viewing by whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us any questions. I mean, <laughs> you can try. I don't know if you've got enough posts allowed. If you get limited. <laughs> tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fate of Pod on Twitter. You can find me at Hannah and S Flint on Instagram.
2: I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram.
1: I am at Mom Woman on Twitter, Instagram and Threads. Threads. Oh, God.
2: i knew
0: it i knew it are
1: you gonna join no you're not gonna join
0: i just if if twitter goes down yes i'm just not adding like i need a social media platform to like be removed before i join a new one like that's for me i can't
1: yeah Yeah. and don't forget if you want to be in in with a chance to uh, get all those competition goodies uh make sure you follow us and retweet that tweet
0: Farewell film friends, it's time to fade to black.